Hello, and welcome to the Political Science Report, where each week I break down some of the latest and greatest political science literature. I'm your host, John Murphy. I have a Twitter if you want to follow Political Science Report or at PolySciReport. Great place to see some of the um, really important researchers out there doing research who might not be the most public intellectuals. And so um, I'll be connecting with and following all the professors that I talk about their research. And so it'd be a great place to locate all of them in a single spot. This week, we continue our series in the six most impactful, as judged by APSR, impact score articles from the May issue of the APSR this year. So the title of our article this week is Authoritarian Rallying as Reputational Cascade, Evidence from Putin's Popularity Surge After Crimea. So we're not necessarily focusing on American politics in this episode. Again, um, the last two ones, last time we talked about Alternative for Deutschland, the one before we talked about Communist Poland, and the two before were about American elections. So jumping all over the place with some of the most popular um, published articles in this issue. Um, So I want to iterate before we get into the article itself is that this Again, was published in May 2022, focuses on Crimea, which was in 2014. So even though it is about Russia and Putin, and it does have relevance now, we're not talking about um, the current events going on in Ukraine, even though they are related. So this was probably finished last September, probably took a year to work on or so. So it's not directly related to what's going on due to the nature time, due to the time of publication. Uh, But there are contemporary relevancies that will be discussed. So this article is written and authored. I guess that's the same thing as redundant. This article is written by Henry E. Hale at George Washington University. Hale is a full-time faculty professor of political science and international affairs. He also co-chairs the program for new research methods in Eurasia. So he has a real focus on Eurasia in that area. To quote the university's website, he has spent extensive time conducting field research in post-Soviet Eurasia and is currently working on identity politics and political system change with a special focus now on public opinion dynamics in Russia and Ukraine. His work has won two prizes from the American Political Science Association. He was awarded a Fulbright scholarship for his research in Russia between 2007 and 2008, end quote. So he has a real focus in that area that extends beyond just the Crimean crisis that he writes about in this one. He also is currently writing and still researching, obviously, and doing podcasts that discuss what's currently going on between Russia and Ukraine. So if you are interested in hearing more about all that's going on from an academic perspective, someone with real expertise and history in the area, not just a journalistic background. Henry E. Hale may be someone that you look into following, connecting with, um, and just reading his articles and the podcasts that he guest stars on. Let's get into the article. Because this is not my area of study, just, just like the last couple of articles, I want to do a thorough job outlining the academic background of this paper. I want to make sure to understand what the common theories are. I want to be acquainted with the intellectual history that it sits upon. I want to know what 
what kind of thoughts are taken for granted in a sense. Um, coming in as a foreigner to this new area of research, I just want to make sure that I'm understanding what is being said, not taking it out of context. So starting with the abstract is always a good spot. We're able to somewhat locate ourselves in this literature. Um, so it, after going through it, I'd say it's located in public opinion somewhat. Particularly, it advances research in authoritarian settings, but uh, articulated multiple times that it has ties to public opinion and political formation in democracies as well. So just to outline it in authoritarian settings, when there is an international conflict and the authoritarian, the authoritarian leader's popularity usually surges. And this is shown not only in authoritarian, but also democratic settings that when the US, for example, maybe has an enemy and goes to war that people rally around the president for um, political unity. I think we're getting to a place where that's less and less common, I want to say, even rallying around common enemies with our polarized um, political setting. But particularly in authoritarian regimes, you see surges of popularity, what is called rallying around the flag of the authoritarian leaders. Current theories would argue um, that this is the result of three possible and interacting things. Number one is that there could be a genuine switch of preference during the um, change in something among the population. Second, it could be an increase in patriotism around the conflict. And third, it could be a beholden media that's obedient to the authoritarian power. So current theories would say, for example, the example we're talking about of Crimea would say that the reason his popularity surged was either one, because people genuinely felt more supportive of him. Number two, people experienced a surge in patriotism, which reflected in support of their leader. Or third, the media made people believe that this was a good thing, that this was, that Putin was doing the right thing. So those are three competing ways of attributing the surge in popularity that Putin experienced and a lot of authoritarian leaders do experience when entering international conflict. But this paper, really importantly, however, comma, this paper argues that surges in authoritarian leader popularity are the result of, quote, less than fully sincere rallying, end quote, to use Hale's phrase. In other words, because it is socially desirable to get a, behind a leader in a situation like this, people will rally and support the leader externally and publicly, even though internally they do not like the leader or their decisions. So it most comes up against the... Um, what would be the sincere rallying argument. It's saying that most people are not actually sincerely rallying behind the leader, but are just doing it publicly. And the primary argument of this mechanism is that it's social pressure that's causing an individual to insincerely rally behind a leader that they privately do not support. The author tells us that there's a common finding that leaders do receive a boost in popularity when they bring their nation into an international conflict, a rallying behind the leader. But almost all of the research has been done in democratic settings and a setting like Russia or other authoritarian states is under-researched and it is an open question. Much of the research on why support for a leader in conflict has come in democratic countries 
is because public opinion research and polls are more accessible and also seem to be more reliable whereas public opinion research down in authoritarian countries where the pollsters the people interpreting the data people finalizing the publishing of the data um, very well may be at the mercy of an authoritarian leader so it's much harder to trust some of the the data that comes out of those polls and so the data even in democracies is assumed to be reliable there's not much investigation um, at least the author argues in terms of how sincere people's opinions are he obviously acknowledges that that is a concern and we'll talk about that in a bit um, but this is a novel area of research in researching the insincere opinions behind rallying in authoritarian regimes so the argument of this paper or what it investigates is this process in settings where dissent is strongly undesirable when a leader makes an international political move entering a conflict annexing an area going to war people immediately assess what is most socially desirable most socially desirable public stance to make and then the individual takes it would it be most popular to side with the leader here in what ways for what reasons um, and due to the desirability socially your reputation the potential costs of not um, supporting the leader they rally not because they actually support the leader this study focuses on data collected from the crime the crimea event in 2014 for anyone who does not remember russia annexed crimea secretly in march 2014 which was a massive international event support for putin skyrocketed skyrocketed and remained high for up to four years in russia um, we have so what the author uses here is panel data of individuals from a reliable polling organization it seems like who are asked in 2012 about their support for Putin and then again in 2015 about their support for Putin so that's going to come later but let's outline the different groups of people so we have a panel of individuals who rallied for Putin and in this group there are two important groups first are the ralliers this is a really important term people who at time zero did not support Putin but now at time one do support him so at t0 no support at t1 yes support so it's just kind of a binary indicator t0 is zero t1 is one and within this group of people so within ralliers there is a subgroup called dissemblers who did not support putin at time zero but at time one deny they did not support him so there's a group of people who did not support him and now support him who are honest about that who are sincere ralliers and then there are people who did not support him now support him and deny that they did not support him and these people are the dissemblers and so just to be really clear about that dissemblers are people who when asked in 2015 did you support putin in 2012 they say yes and they currently support putin so just to jump ahead here because i think it's relevant right now is that in the initial study from 2015 there are four groups of people there are loyalists people who at time zero and time one supported putin and there are oppositionists people at time zero and time one who did not support putin in either time so those are the two ends of the spectrum loyalists and um loyalists and oppositionists they call them and then there's the 
rallier, which goes from non-support to support, and then there's the defector that goes from support to non-support. So within the rallier category are the dissemblers who are essentially, they mechanically are ralliers, but a little more nuanced, they deny their previous lack of support for Putin. So before getting into more detail, author makes an important point that this sort of research can open up doors in democratic context as well. It's not just an authoritarian phenomenon for people to insincerely support um, the regime and to lie about previous support. This reminds me of two things. The first is Ketman, K-E-T-M-A-N, from Meloge's The Captive Mind. Ketman is a term he borrows from Islam that describes a practice in which an individual is actually a non-believer that doesn't believe in the faith but keeps it secret their entire life. They may be um, a leader in the religious community. They may bring their children up in the faith, but secretly, internally, there's this lack of belief that they don't um, publicly display. And so the idea is that some people before their death, they do reveal, oh, I never believed this all along. And in his writing, which is in the context of Stalinist Poland, he attributes this, um, this, behavior, this Ketman-like behavior to a lot of political leaders, to a lot of authors, artists, politicians, saying that, oh, there's a lot of people who internally don't believe these things, but externally will profess it as if they were true believers. Some people in the end admit it. They write a letter saying, I never believe this. Some people burst in person and say, I never believe this. Some people take it to their grave. And this also makes me think of the lying that could have gone on during the polling before the 2016 election. I heard that one of the reasons pollsters got it so wrong was that people would lie about their support for Trump. So pollsters would call someone up, you know, people felt the social undesirability of supporting Trump. And so when asked even over the phone, they denied their support. And so it inflated the numbers from Hillary and necessarily deflated the numbers for Trump. But when people were able to vote anonymously, where they could just be honest and not have to fear consequences in our democracy, people showed their what their internal private true beliefs were, and Trump ended up winning. And so Ketman and those 2016 effects on the polling, I think there's a both stretching the immediate context. I'm not saying that this is exactly what we're talking about. We're really specifically, very specifically, talking about dissembling, which is rallying in support of the leader, but lying about previous unsupport. But I think those two examples kind of get at the idea of insincere support. But again, dissembling is defined as lying about previous lack of support. So within the current research on rallying, there are two schools of thought. Um, there's the patriotism school and the thought leadership school. The patriotism school argues that when entering international conflict, it's the surge in patriotism that reflects positively on a leader, which drives rallying, while the thought leadership school argues that, oh, when you enter an international conflict, the television, media social media tell you what to think and opposition particularly quiets down and doesn't criticize as much in order to support a national unity so what that would look like in in an american context would be say we go to war with a country we go to war with russia or something 
um, and out of the need for national unity, people who typically criticize Biden actually stop criticizing him so much. And so polling for Biden would increase and it would look like people are rallying around him. So that's the thought leadership argument. So there's the patriotism school and the thought leadership school. The important thing in both schools is that they both assume that rallying is sincere. There's no investigation of insincere rallying, which this paper really, really hones in on. The research on public opinion surveys, where most opinion data comes from, has seen people lie on surveys. Obviously, it's not something that has been unconsidered in this area. It seems pretty obvious to think about it, so it has been. Um, it's been pretty clearly shown that there can be a divergence between people's private and publicly proclaimed views. I think there is a lot of common sense based in human nature, um, but specifically economists call this preference falsification and psychologists call it compliance. Social pressures could be something that cause someone to falsify their beliefs. An example might be the questions regarding race on some common ANES surveys. One way to get around this is to try to word the questions in a neutral way. As a real example of this, on the, I think it's one of the ANES surveys, or maybe it's the ANES survey, but it, it wouldn't work out well, I think, and people think, to just simply ask questions like, people of color are superior, do you, or people of color are inferior to whites, do you agree or do you disagree? Or... I do not like people of color. Do you agree or do you disagree? Something like that. People have a sense of what's socially acceptable. And so even if you hold those views privately, there's pressure to not write that on the survey. So one way that you can kind of get around that is by asking slightly more neutral questions. So I know some of them are something along the lines of this. Um, people of color get too many government handouts. People of color need to work harder. People of color complain too much. And so these elicit slightly different responses, um, but they're trying to get at the same type of attitude that the direct questions wouldn't elicit accurate answers on due to social pressures, where the perspective on this could simply, someone may feel more free, oh, this is actually my negative affect towards people of color, I can reflect more neutrally in answering this question rather than the other question. Um, and because of that, they are different questions. I do have a problem of someone taking these directly to be exact proxies for racism. Um, obvious problems arise when people of color <laughs> answer those questions, right? Um, Tesla deals with this in a chapter on Obama's race. He argues that negative responses about black people by black people answering those surveys is less a gauge of how racist the individual is and more a gauge of how much an individual feels solidarity with or identifies with their own group. So there's a lot of debate about it, about is this actually just ideological conservatism Maybe that is tied to racism because we're not asking those exact questions. And even if we did, we wouldn't be able to get accurate answers due to social pressure. So it is a lively debate going on. But those are some ways, at least in, in asking questions that you can try to approximate what you're getting at without asking the exact question due to social pressure. So there's debate about that. I'm interested in that debate, but that's not to be fully expanded on here. A lot of this background I want to know comes from Kiran or Kuran, K-U-R-A-N. 
he calls this sort of social pressure and perspective falsification or preference falsification reputational cascade and so the idea here is that when some international conflict happens some big political event happens public expressions are expressed the media has their perspective individuals share their perspectives and immediately undecided individuals consider what is being expressed they take cues from what is the socially desirable opinion to hold and therefore from there they make the the um, analysis of oh what should i share as my public opinion and so there's a cascading effect of oh i want my reputation to be safe so i'm going to adopt the popular opinion and as that grows one person turns to two two to four four to sixteen sixteen to whatever so the idea is that there's a cascading effect of people who agree with the most socially acceptable opinion and they're trying to protect their reputation through that. TV and social media in authoritarian states is particularly effective in portraying representative or desirable positions. The author outlines three mechanisms by which TV or media can shape opinion. Quote, the public expressions of support for the leader, they encounter their shape initial beliefs about one, which interpretations are most relevant and thus socially desirable. Oh, sorry, prevalent and thus socially desirable. Number two, what repercussions might be associated with failing to publicly adopt the socially desirable view, such as discomfort, being rebuked, or perhaps even being branded unpatriotic or traitorous. And number three, what social rewards might accrue to those expressing the desirable position, end quote. I really like these three things. I'll talk about them later and I'll think about them, ponder them more in my own heart when this is over because I think they're helpful for me. Um, so three reasons P TV and media may shape people is number one, it tells you what other people think. Number two, it tells you what punishments might accrue to you not thinking that. And number three, it tells you what benefits might accrue to you thinking that. So the author from here arrives at two hypotheses, the dissembling hypothesis and the cascade hypothesis. The dissembling hypothesis is that a rally will include a significant share of dissembling ralliers. He proposes that certain types of traits will be more strongly correlated with dissembling, rallying. And again, dissemblers are people who did not support and now support and particularly lie about their previous unsupport of the leader. Hypothesis number two is the cascade hypothesis. And it is that dispositions known, quote, dispositions known to be associated with reputational cascades will pr predict dissembling ralliers. These dispositions include A, believing a majority of the population supports the leader during the rally, B, the consumption of higher levels of television, news, and social media, C, weaker opposition dispositions prior to the rally, and three, or C, two, lower awareness of costs associated with the rally triggering event, end quote. So we'll talk about those and how they apply, what the logic is behind them later, but those are the two general hypotheses. And now we get to some of the background. We've given the background, we've given the particular answer that this research is trying to find, and we've talked about the exact gap that this research is hoping to fill, and how this research is doing it, what it's using for data, the survey, the panel surveys, um, and now we turn to the particular case at hand of Crimea. So in 2014, for those of you who do not remember, Putin, on the heels of dropping approval, took over the Crimean Peninsula in russia 
The Crimean Peninsula represents an important political and geographical location in Russian and Ukrainian history and even world history. Um, it's supposedly, I've never been there, I haven't seen lots of photos, but it's supposed to be a very beautiful um, peninsula and it kind of sits right there if you envision Ukraine just to the southwest of Russia and then Russia obviously to the northeast of Ukraine and kind of in between in the Black Sea there's a peninsula so it's right between the two countries it's been disputed for a very long time it figures prominently in the um, Russian Empire psyche that Putin seems to espouse and that Crimea used to be part of Russia just like Ukraine used to be um, then eventually um, not exactly sure on the exact history of it, but eventually Ukraine passed out of the hands of Russia as well as Crimea. And Crimea has been in and out of Russian hands um, and was out of Russian hands up until 2014. So the takeover is not just a neutral annexing land. It represented an act of aggression by Russia, a movement toward reclaiming the land within the great Russian empire. So within the Russian empire, Catherine the Great was the one who... Um, took over Crimea, took it from those previously inhabiting and fighting over it. And then eventually, I think um, Tsar Nicholas, the last Tsar of Russia, the, there was a, like an imperial vacation home there. So it was this really important part of Russia and the royalty um, and people vacation a lot in the Crimea. And so again, it's not only this neutral land, but it's this very representative area of the Russian Empire. And so that's something that we're even seeing now with Putin wanting to take over Crimea as he's trying to expand Russia, trying to make it as powerful as, in his eyes, as beautiful and shimmering um, as it once was in the 19th and 18th centuries. And so Crimea was step one. Ukraine is step two, in a sense, of the expansion of the Russian Empire and, again, the reclaiming of the empire in history so after the crimea was annexed their western relations with russia dropped to an all-time low since the cold war um, as the author points out and so this was a really really notable act of international conflictual aggression but within russia popularity surged for putin going from 80 percent going from 60 percent sorry to 80 percent so it's a really, really big historical event that at the time seemed significant and only now we're seeing even more how significant it was and how significant this, this war with Ukraine is and Russia trying to reestablish itself, more particularly Putin trying to reclaim the glory in his eyes of the Russian Empire. The panel data assessed in this study came as part of a Russian election study that wanted to assess voter behavior in the 2012 election. So the Crimean rally was in 2014. And so after the Crimean rally, there was commissioned another resurvey of a large amount of the same group to see what had changed in the intervening time. So first study, 2012, Crimea, 2014. Second study of most of the same panelists, 2015, to give a simple timeline. And something to note is that some of the election studies in some of these countries may Maybe we could be very easily skeptical of them, uh, maybe what is published. But on the, on the other hand, um, you would think that studies commissioned by the empire itself would actually want to be accurate to assess 
public opinion, even if it wasn't happy with it, there, there would be some incentive to accurately know public opinion. I know a lot of studies were done in Mexico. Um, I think in, uh, I want to say between like the 40s and 80s or something, the president ran a really accurate and robust election study and just public opinion study, just even daily or weekly of what was going on. And I think even just the psyche of empire may cause this kind of um, paranoia and wanting to know. And so it's not uncommon for some countries, even um, corrupt ones, to have some sort of accurate election database or public opinion database. I'm not saying they're all accurate. Maybe they're more inaccurate than accurate. But just in case there is a challenge or even a question over, oh, why would we trust this data in the first place? So some information that comes from the panel design in 2012, 52% of Russians said that they had voted for Putin, but here's the dissemblers. But in 2015 survey, 67% were claiming to have voted for him. So this is what they call dissembling. People editing, misrepresenting, lying about their political record. So 52% said they voted in 2012. Maybe an interesting thought I'm just having now is that that could be a suppressed amount given the time, but that doesn't seem as reasonable. I need to think about that more, so don't pay too much attention to that. But 67% claiming would mean that, what is that, 10, 14%, sorry, 15% of people more now are claiming that they voted for Putin in 2012. Here's some more interesting percentages between 2012 and 2015. There are four types of people that I mentioned, loyalists, defectors, ralliers, and oppositionists. You can probably guess who they are if you just remember loyalists support putin in both years defectors support putin in the first but not in the second ralliers are the opposite they support him in the first and then or they do not support him in the first sorry and support him in the second and oppositionists at time zero and time one oppose putin so ralliers those who didn't support but now do make up about 27 percent of the sample in 2015 because 10 percent of people were defectors, so the difference in amount of people voting for Putin only went up 17%, but because of that defector dropping 10, the other, um, the 17 plus 10 is filled in as ralliers. So 27% of the sample in 2015. However, within that subgroup, 75% of them misrepresent their 2012 views and dissemble. In other words, it's not 75% of all voters, it's 75% of the people who go from non-support to support of Putin over that time period lie about their 2012 support. So the idea here is that because we have panel data and we're interviewing for the most part the same individuals, we can see, oh wait, in 2012 you said you didn't vote for Putin, but now you said you did. That's a rallier. But then the person who goes further and says, oh, I didn't support Putin in 2012, that's a dissembler. And so 75% of the people who go from non-support to support lie about their lack of support in 2012. There remain challenges to this finding, of course, this is a preliminary support of, yeah, there's a lot of people that are dissembling. One challenge is this. It is that people are simply forgetting who they voted for. Maybe, you know, people are forgetting that they didn't vote for Putin and are remembering that they did. And so that accounts for the 75% the of people who say that they, they did support him. That happens, doesn't it? 
Um, and it does, it is documented that people do indeed forget who they voted for. But the author does three checks, including they include a, he includes a set of separate questions that they look at that I didn't spend too much time looking at. It didn't seem the most important for this purpose. Um, but the three things they did to check were including a set of separate questions. They used circumstantial evidence to show that the population interviewed was not a likely one to forget who they voted for as those who are least politically engaged are those who are most easily forget who they voted for. And they also compare this election to other Russian elections of even less magnitude. So something like the state treasurer or something like that. And people only to a very small degree forgot who they actually voted for. So the idea is in something way more important like a presidential campaign, um, people would be less likely to forget. And so based on these three checks, they do find he does find strong evidence that it, the the cause of this is not that people are forgetting, but rather that there is an intentional decision to misrepresent, to lie about previous support for Putin. Okay, so far we've seen that a large group of the ralliers, people who jumped into support of Putin between 2012 and 2015, misrepresented intentionally their 2012 views. We still have to establish why this is. It's not because people forgot. Based on the numbers so far, though, you cannot say that these are insincere people or that they are straight up lying because they're socially concerned about their reputation. Perhaps this is a thought and this is a reasonable possibility, but thoughts and reasonable possibilities are not good enough in scientific research. So in order to test the reputational cascade theory, our author constructs four primary independent variables that will be predicted, that will predict the likelihood of a dissembling rallier. Number one is the perception of the majority of the population supporting Putin. They argue, he argues, sorry, he argues that people who perceive Putin to be supported by the majority to be the type of people who will side with him insincerely. The idea with this is that someone who thinks that the majority of people support Putin will be someone who also feels the social majority pressure to vote for Putin. I'd be interested to see in 2012 how majority popularity is associated with support for Putin or even opposition. Um, and they do check this. Interestingly enough, they do find that um, perceiving Putin to be favored by the majority is not strongly associated with support of him or yeah with support of him and so therefore that it's a particular particular set of new people that are dissembling that are most sensitive that in a sense are basing their support of Putin on the consideration that they feel the majority of people are um, are supporting him number two they use a measure that captures captures how much Russian news um, there are three dominant Russian news stations that are state-sponsored, and all of them, most of them, all of them are mostly strongly pro-Russia. The idea being that the more news consumed, the more aware of popular opinions this individual will be. So the idea is that if this person is very, very, very aware of what the majority opinion is, because this person consumes a lot of media, this person will most likely again consider how popular opinion, what the popular opinions are, and then switch their their views and say, oh, I'll support Putin, even though privately, out of social consideration, I'll support Putin, even though privately, I don't. 
Number three is a scale how much people think they gained or lost economically since Putin took office. Number four is a measure of the consequences of Putin's actions in Crimea, whether positive or negative. To compare these to um, the conventional patriotism and thought leadership schools, independent measure, independent variables are constructed. For the patriotism school, they include an independent variable if people think pride in being a Russian citizen has increased, and if Russia has become more politically influential in the world. The idea is that if these are the strongest predictors of someone rallying, then whether they're dissembling or they're sincerely rallying, then it is true that patriotism is what's driving and most associated with these new supports, this new newfound support of Putin. The thought leadership school is tested um, using independent variables of if individuals have recently consumed an oppositional news source and an indicator if they're members of the largest opposition party right now in Russia, which is the Communist Party. Now let's get to some results. First, the author finds that one of the key variables here, perceived support of Putin, is correlated with dissembling rallying. As I mentioned my concern, they showed that majority support for Putin, perceiving the majority of people to be in favor of Putin, is not correlated with support in 2012, meaning it is not a consideration for those supporting Putin in 2012. Excuse me, but in 2015, this does pop up as a consideration, which could be, I think, reasonably argued that more people who are now supporting Putin are taking what the majority think into consideration. Media consumption of dominant, dominant Russian media outlets is also, also strongly associated with the likelihood of being a dissembling rallier. It's not as straightforward, given the numerous television channels, um, but interestingly, frequency of consumption, consumption is associated with an increase in dissembling, but not sincere rallying. So those who consume more media are more likely to be dissemblers, but those who consume more media are not more likely to be ralliers overall, sincere ralliers. They interpret this to mean that media consumption tells people what they should think or it educates them on what the socially desirable positions are, but not necessarily highly persuasive in forming their own private opinions. Now we turn to the priors of Putin and dissembling. Author finds that those who in 2012 had the least anti-Putin views, this means people who had anti-Putin views, who are on the side of the continuum of being anti-Putin, but the least intense of those, not the people most for Putin, and I had to understand this because it's a little bit of a um, confusing phrase, but again, the idea is that these people fell on the side of anti-Putin, but they were the least extreme in their anti-Putin views. These people were most likely to become dissemblers. Why? This falls in line with the theory that because those who are already closest to the socially desirable position will have the least difficulty the least difficult experience of expressing socially desirable views, even if they don't believe them themselves. The theory for this is that the farther you go from your actual views, the farther the gap between your private views and public views, the harder it becomes to express them. So people who are maybe anti-Putin, but just on that side of the continuum, will have a far easier time making the journey to the pro-Putin side of the continuum than those who are more far anti-Putin. So the idea is that those who had pretty moderate to mild negative views of Putin were the ones who flipped 
to becoming um, dissemblers, people who privately didn't support Putin, but publicly did. But there's the smallest gap between those opinions. Maybe they slightly dislike him, and then they express that they slightly like him, but they do fall on the side of people moving from left to right, or not in a political sense, but from moving on one side of the continuum to the other side. To look at the next independent variable, none of the costs of the Crimea are statistically important. Um, and as, as relating to the conventional theories, testing the patriotism theory, the author does find that individuals who rate highly the increase in Russian pride are 11 points more likely than others to be sincere ralliers. This means that going from thinking that Russian pride has increased or not thinking Russian pride has increased, to thinking Russian pride has increased, is associated with an 11% increase in likelihood to be a sincere rallier. The finding is in line with previous theories that increased patriotism is a sincere reason to rally. The difference would be that sincere ralliers do not make up a majority of ralliers, so the patriotism school is right that that is a driver, but it's incorrect in it being a primary driver, and it's incomplete in not even considering insincere rallying. No evidence is found to support the thought leadership argument, the author says. I think it's not shown here, but I would be cautious to say that um, thought leadership is unimportant because it was a kind of secondary confirmatory finding, a comparison to the primary research question. There wasn't tons of effort that went into determining the effect of thought leadership. So I wouldn't come away from this paper saying, oh, thought leadership doesn't affect rallying. Um, I think an article centrally on that would be more equipped to deal with that answer. But as this research is framed, the thought leadership argument does not seem to hold as much water as these other theories of rallying and considerations of insincere rallying. Now let's turn to the discussion. So the article establishes a number of things. The first and primary thing is that it provides a deeper look into theories around rallying. Specifically, where rallying has been assumed to be sincere, this author devises a way and exploits panel data to determine that 75% of ralliers in this context are actually dissemblers, people lying about their previous lack of support. It's important to pause here. The author makes a good case for it, and I think there's good reason to make the jump, but you cannot conclude... You cannot conclude from this study that the majority of people who supported Putin in the intervening years are insincere. You can argue that 75% of people are dissemblers. That's defined by the author as people who misre misrepresent their past support of Putin. But any, I think you can reasonably think this. Um, but I'm a bit cautious about moving too far outside the language of the author, the language of exact constraints on the research, and thus exact constraints on what the conclusions can be. So just think of this example. Say in 2000, you survey people who have converted to Christianity in the past 10 years, or say 2010. Say in 2010, you survey people who have converted to Christianity in the past 10 years, and you know their behaviors from 10 years ago in 2000. You survey them about their behaviors from 10 years ago, and say 75% of them misrepresent their behaviors. Um, say in the 2010 sample, only 50% say I was an alcoholic, while 65% of them actually were. 
So people are misrepresenting their 2000 behavior in 2010 now that they've converted to Christianity. Would the conclusion be then that these people are not sincere believers? That these people actually haven't converted to Christianity sincerely? I don't think so. I think they may be confirming to social norms or expectations. I think they may not want to be admitting to things that they maybe now are sincerely ashamed of. The problem would be of honesty, a consideration of maybe repression, um, and a lack of clarity on possible consequences of the survey. But just because people lied about their behavior from 10 years ago, and even a lot of people lied about their behavior, I don't think you can directly conclude that these people are not sincere in their current state of beliefs. So that would turn, that would um, be the more specific qualification that I would add to this research. And the author actually does. It was kind of funny. As soon as I wrote that paragraph, the next paragraph I read in the paper addressed this. And it even used language of, it used religious language, um, like conversion to Putinism. And so here's what the author says. Quote, there are two, or sorry, um, the author says that there are two current studies on rallying around Putin after Crimea. The author complains that these studies only consider the possibility of sincere rallying. They find increases, they find rallying, um, but they assume only sincere rallying and um, not dissembling or insincere rallying. And the author does note, he says that um, it would be surprising to find no insincere rallying. But I think what's most important is that the author admits and says, hey, this is an advancement in the literature to at least devise ways and considering and interrogating insincere beliefs, insincere rallying. And I think that's right. I think as I outline and the example that I gave is just because people lied about their behavior from 10 years ago doesn't mean that you can conclude that their newfound Christian beliefs are insincere. So in response to this, the author argues why he thinks the theory advanced in this paper is more accurate and why it will be important in the future. First, he points us to the social sciences and says, um, he says this, quote, it would be surprising if people pursued conformity exclusively through conversion and not at all through compliance or preference falsification, end quote. So idea here again is just simply saying, it's pretty a common sense consideration that probably not everyone is sincerely expressing rallying beliefs. Um, and so overall in this paper, I think I would say that that's the, the really important qualification to make as outlined. Yes, 75% of ralliers are dissemblers, but you cannot go ahead from there and conclude that these people are completely insincere because they're lying. It's not that dissembler gets us at... Um, being insincere. It just means that they lied about their 2020, 2012 voting behavior. And so while I think there is a reasonable jump to be made, and I think the author is very willing to admit this, what the author does um, is really important regarding political belief transmission, political formation, public opinion changes, um, reputational cascading, and in an opening for a fruitful line of research in all political contexts, not just Russian, not just Eurasian, but also rich for my own line of research in American politics. 
And I think there's something really important to keep in mind. The conclusion of this paper seems to be, um, if the conclusion is, oh, people are dissemblers, but we can't conclude that they're insincere, it seems kind of like a low bar, commonsensical, namely that people who rally around a political figure or the flag, especially in authoritarian states, are not all sincere, and many are conforming because of the threat of punishment or social pressure. I think that's common sense. I agree. But you can't stop there. You can't say, why would you write this article if you already know the conclusion? So an important distinction is that even though the conclusion you could have made before, we do have more support for the common sense conclusion, and it may inform common sense going forward. And the author is honest about this, but what's really important and fascinating is the method of this research, the methods used, the panel data used, that it's a novel research design within this context of Eurasia, and also it has applications for other countries, other political contexts. And I think what the primary um, thing that you can take away from this article is the investigation of insincere beliefs. The author is simply offering the best method that came to mind that was available to him. Um, and sometimes that's all you can do when you're studying something brand new. You need more minds, you need more people, you need more funding, you need more time to perfectly investigate this question. So even though the conclusion may be unsurprising, I think that it's really important that great findings can come from this article. I'm sure it'll influence research design that I have in considering, oh, how do we investigate? Uh, because even though it's common sense, the common sense that we, need to, that we need to get to is how does this work? What is the mechanism? How can we tell? Sure, people are insincere, but how do we get an accurate measurement of that? And why are people being insincere? And in what context are people most insincere? So for research going forward, and even my own research in American politics, this is an important paper. Just my final conclusions, my thoughts about it. I'd be curious about um, the age in the research and just broader about political swing um, and rallying our younger people more malleable and more likely to support and switch their opinions. Um, I'd be interested in a two-party system form of political education and how people take direction from the parties and how people in two-party, not authoritarian systems, form what they think is the most socially desirable opinion. I really like, as I mentioned before, the three mechanisms for beliefs. That is what the desirable opinion is, why you should believe it, and why you shouldn't disbelieve it. Um, way of replicating this research design would be to compare possibly the degree of political repression with the degree of dissembling. Are more repressive states more likely to have dissemblers instead of sincere ralliers? And again, this research has been, this data, um, the author points out multiple times, is new. It was It's difficult to find other data like this. And so you can't really go around to every country and, and make that comparison. But maybe in the future, we'll have means of getting at it. And again, this is an important paper for even people thinking about doing that. Um, finally, I'm curious about this paper's use of TV and social media for assessing likelihood to rally. It reminds me of an article on the pandemic. I think it was by Tesler or Talsanovich, uh, but it was about partisan responses to COVID. They show, um, I don't know why I'm blanking on time series data. Yeah, time series data on different states and the different political parties on COVID response. And it's kind of funny that really early on the first couple weeks, the first month or two, People felt very similarly about it. There was a lot of panic. There was a lot of um, 
unclear information. And there was even switching in perspectives. I remember um, COVID went down my senior year of college. Um, it was really a time where no one knew what was going on. It was crazy. It was raining and dreary outside. So it just added to kind of that apocalyptic feeling. It was every day there was new emails coming from Cal Poly Pomona. Every day there was new information from work and from teachers. Um, but what struck me that I still really remember is that there were two positions. COVID is really dangerous and COVID is not really dangerous. And more conservative people were arguing that COVID is really dangerous, which is why we need to call it the um, Chinese flu, why we need a state that is from Wuhan, why we need to point to China because it's really dangerous and, and we need to race, take the risk of um, ostracizing Asian Americans because we need to be clear about where this comes from and that it is distinct from the regular flu. And that was a more conservative stance that they were arguing about how dangerous it was and that how dangerous it was uh, bolstered their their need to distinguish it from the regular flu. But on the opposite side of the spectrum, more progressive, more liberal people were saying, oh, it's actually not that bad. It's not that bad of a flu. It's not that dangerous. This is a ploy by Trump to try to be racist to try to rally around his white identity politics and so this actually isn't that bad of a flu don't be too worried about it it's just um, exploitation from the republican party and those two narratives have kind of that was like the first week or two it was really early on but those narratives have kind of flipped you know have really flipped is that you know now it's not dangerous and it's a ploy by the progressive state to get trump out of office or oh it actually is really dangerous and we need to um, mask up and it's all these conservative people that are pushing this narrative because they don't care and they're privileged or, or whatever. And so the main point there is that initially you see people pretty neutral. You see most people worried. You see most people scared. You see most people just trying to buy masks and buying toilet paper and buying water. But as learning happens, as partisans begin to get their stuff together and begin to see what narratives may be most helpful for their political ends, that's where you start to see concretized political stances. And so I'm just interested in that overall is, you know, when a tragedy happens, when something new happens, when there's a development, in the first two hours of, of people hearing about it, I'm so curious about what they think. Are they for it or they're against it? What is their initial per perception without partisan influence? And so I think that that's an interesting thing. It's something I hope to get at. Um, and I think that this article does a good job of opening that door, particularly in authoritarian regimes. Um, but thank you so much for listening. Next week, we'll continue our series. It'll be the last article in this series. And this one, um, this one I think, had an impact score of 226. So we're almost doubling that in the next one with 448. This is by far the most impactful one from this issue. It is this one is for the boys. How Gendered Political Socialization Limits Girls' Political Ambition and Interest. So excited to bring that to you next week. Hope you have a great week. Thanks for listening to The Political Report, and I will see you soon. Talk to you then. Bye.